can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Father, as we look to your word, we know that you've, we behold you in creation, we behold you in our conscience. Father, we behold your glory or beheld your glory as Christ came to earth. And Father, we behold you as we look to the scriptures. And we just pray, Father, we see you clearly, that you would continue to draw us to your dear son and open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Judges 3, and I'm going to read from verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served, king, served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took his sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chambers behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. And did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped, 
So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, as we look at our second judge, uh, you're going to immediately notice that the storyline is identical to what we've already seen. I can just re-preach last week's sermon for those who were here with the exact same points. God sees, God sells, and God saves. If you recall, one of our main points last week is that God sees, and the writer of the book of Judges is hammering that point home because he actually repeats it twice here in verse 12, doesn't he? In verse 12, he says, They did evil in the sight of the Lord, so Eglon was brought against them. And at the end of the verse, he restates it because they had done what was evil, quote, in the sight of the Lord. And the point we made is God sees their sin, that all of our sin is in the plain sight of God. And because of their sin, this time he sells them not to Kushan Rishithayim. Now he sells them into the hand of Eglon, king of Moab. And, and, and the king of Moab gets the Amalekites together and gets the Ammonites together. And the scripture says they go and defeat Israel. Now, I don't have the time to explain. Uh, I, I do have the time to explain, but we're going to go into our potluck. The whole history of the Moabites. Uh, again, that would be a sermon in itself. But when the nation of Israel was wandering throughout the wilderness, they wanted to peacefully pass through the land of Moab. And the king at that time told them, no, you can't pass through. Along with that, Balak, another king of Moab, he's the one who hired Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel, and God did not allow it. So in the past, when the nation was seeking the Lord, when the nation was following the Lord, they were protected from the Moabites. And now that they've forsaken the Lord and are under bondage to the very nation that God was pre previously protecting them from. And we're already aware of the fact that their sin has caused God to remove his protective hand. In verse 14, we're told the people are in bondage for 18 years. And as they've done in the past, they finally come to the place where they cry out to the Lord, they're in obvious misery, they're in bondage, they're under the thumb of King Eglon, and their cry for mercy is heard, and though we'll see from chapter 4, verse 1, they're still completely unrepentant, our gracious and our compassionate God still saves his unrepentant people. Verse 15 tells us the name of their deliverer, uh, the next judge, his name is Ehud, and if you just jump down to verse 30, we can read that verse and start the potluck. We can go home. Because the story is the same as last week. We know that Ehud's the deliverer. He kills Eglon. And verse 30 says, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest. This time, not for 40 years, but now for 80 years. And then you look at chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again, there was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, do you see the pattern? God sees, God sells, God saves, and then Israel sins. Same story as Othniel exactly. However, 
we do not have with Othniel these incredible details to enhance our enjoyment of God's deliverance. Now, I say our enjoyment, but there are some commentators who'd rather not see this passage in Holy Scripture. Um, some think it's a little too ugly. Uh, some think it's a little too nasty. Some think it's a little too deceitful. Some think it's a little too gory. And some obviously think it's a little too smelly. And if this is the first time you've ever read this passage of Scripture or made aware that it's in the Bible, you may have thought I was actually reading from some other source, reading from something other than the Word of God. I mean, if the story were made into a movie, it would have all the elements of a fantastic drama with a singular hero. It has intrigue. It has suspense. It has deceit and surprise. It has an assassination. It has an interesting weapon that enters a king and never comes out. It has a great escape. It even has a bit of bathroom humor. It even has a comic aspect that are going to make future Israelites who read this story, they're going to just marvel at God's deliverance of his people. It kind of reads like a movie, so I think I want to walk through this as if we're filming parts of it. And, if, and, and I think that way it'll come more vivid. If you have any imagination at all, uh, the story is captivating, and it's meant to captivate us as we read it. So we're going to walk through it together, and I'll save the majority of the application for the end. The movie has to start way back in verse 10, doesn't it? Back when Israel is enjoying what? They're 40 years of rest, 40 years of no slavery, 40 years of no bondage, 40 years, a full generation of just the routine of life, um, waking up, going to work, going to school, doing your house chores, mowing the grass, going to birthday parties, having graduations, going to holidays. How, however, sadly, even under the 40 years of rest, the nation continues to worship the Canaanite gods, continues to serve Baal and Ashtoreth, and they actually continue, we're told, to marry into Canaanite families and have Canaanite families marry into the families of Israel. Now, as a side note, that particular command had nothing to do with ethnicity. There are some who use a passage like that that forbid marrying foreign women to say that Caucasians should marry Caucasians and Asians, Asians, and Hispanics, Hispanics, and blacks, blacks, and so on. But this is never about ethnicity, and it's never about nationality. Moses had a Cushite, or an Ethiopian wife. We know Boaz marries Moabite, uh, Ruth. Never about race. This is always about spirituality. The reason it's wrong for an Israelite to marry a Canaanite is the same reason that we're commanded in the New Testament to not ever be unequally oaked with unbelievers. I mean, a Christian should never marry a non-Christian. They will draw you away from Christ. All through Judges and even all the commands in the Old Testament, even the commands for kings not to have multiple wives, the purpose of these laws wasn't to keep ethnic purity. It was to maintain purity of life and purity of doctrine and purity of faith. From time to time, you'll meet young people who think they can be part of what you'd call evangelistic dating. 
dating someone who is a really nice guy or a really nice girl who, who you might have a lot in common with, who you really enjoy, who is okay with you being a Christian, but you know, he or she just doesn't go down that path. And, and my encouragement to you is not to go down that path. Start praying now that God would lead you and direct and guide you. If you're a parent, you start praying now that God leads and directs and guides your children. And those of us who are grandparents, we are praying now. We are praying now that God would lead and direct and guide our grandchildren. They would marry people who are committed followers of Jesus Christ. You may know some of the people I know who will give testimony that they knew the day they walked down the aisle that they were marrying a non-Christian. They knew it, and they had high hopes that that person might become a Christian. And over time, because of disobedience to the word of God, it creates nothing but heartache, nothing but conflict, and even worse when children are involved. In nearly every case, the believer moves away from the Lord. The unbeliever does not move toward the Lord. Now, if indeed someone becomes a Christian during the marriage, that's a different subject, a different topic, addressed in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's a different thing to talk about. But the point is, is marrying the Lord. And of course, the Israelites are not doing that. They continued becoming more and more and more like the Canaanites. So finally, after 40 years of continued covenant breaking, continued doing evil, even during the wonderful rest that God gave them, God finally raises up Eglon to defeat Israel, and now they are slaves in the land that God promised to give them as an inheritance. And their slavery, we know, lasts 18 long years. Ultimately, what the slavery are being defeated really means is they are actually working for Eglon or working for the Moabites. We know that during this time period, they are sustained by agriculture. And since we're told in verse 15, the people of Israel sent tribute to King Eglon, most commentators agree that that tribute would have been a large portion, portion of, of the crops the people would grow and the livestock that they would raise. You see, since they're conquered by Eglon, in order for them to now live in their own land, they had to pay King Eglon. Consider it a heavy tax. Uh, consider it uh, just to live in the land that God promised would be theirs. They're in the promised land, but they are actually slaves of England. Their slavery to sin caused them to be slaves of a foreign power. Then after 18 years of misery, uh, 18 years of misery, according to verse 15, they cry out to God, and then God raises up Ehud. Now, the fact that he's left-handed gives intrigue to the story. I mean, small details are important, but we don't want to overthink them. I think being a lefty is unique in, in, in any time period. If you're, if you're a left-handed boxer, you have an advantage. If you're a left-handed hitter, you have an advantage. A left-handed pitcher has an advantage. But I don't think we should overthink this. The key to the story is built around the tribute or the tax or the payment they have to pay because they are the king's slaves. We don't know how high the tax is, but be sure that Eglon got all of the produce first. And whatever was left over, the people would live off of that. And it would not be unusual for a nation to live in poverty while the king and his cohorts lived in luxury and in, 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 in bounty as they paid the tribute year after year after year to the king. 
Now, there's a good possibility that Eglon is described as a fat man in verse 17 is because he's gorging himself on the people's tributes while the people are left to live on very little. So we have the ground laid for our movie, The Nation's at Rest. Eglon conquers Israel, requires a tax or a tribute or a payment. The people cry out to God for mercy, and the left-handed Ehud is raised up as a deliverer. So what happens? Again, this is a movie. Then the, the early scene has to be somewhere in Ehud's hometown because he's preparing to bring the tribute to Eglon. It would require several carts. It would require oxen and men to help bring all of their warriors, so to speak, to the king. So you'd have Ehud there, and men would be loading corn and wheat and barley and figs and wine and, and livestock, and, and they're loading. And during that process, the camera would probably zoom in on Eglon because, because you know, you know he's got something up his sleeve, or maybe it's just up his cloak. A couple things I think are really clear but not stated. It's clear that Ehud had a plan that this is the day he was going to lead the charge to free Israel from Moabite bondage. But he didn't tell a soul. He, if, if this were a movie scene, you'd see Ehud alone in his barn, strapping on that two-edged sword to his right thigh, under his clothes. And not even the men who are helping him load the tribute were, were, knew anything about this at all. Secondly, it's clear that Eglon and Ehud, they knew one another to the point that King Eglon trusted him almost implicitly. And I'll show you why in a minute. Now, the text doesn't mention it, but somewhere between verses 15 and 17, uh, we know that our hero is back on his way with those helping them bring this tribute to King Eglon. In verse 17, the movie scene is going to show all the carts, Full of the produce, the products, they'll be paraded before the king, and everything is going to be brought into the king's storehouses. Clearly, a tremendous source of pride and of arrogance and of pomp for this ungodly, obese king who, who, who has conquered this nation. And Ehud goes through the motions of delivering it. And, and surely our camera would, would zoom in on the consternation of his face that this will be the last tribute because very soon he's going to kill the king. Now, we know nobody knew about the plan because verse 18 states he, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. And then he walks back all the way to the idols at Gilgal, and it's there that he turns around and went back to speak to the king. Now, the mention of the idols at Gilgal it is actually just a reference to such a, the sad state of affairs of the nation of Israel. Gilgal was the city where the, the, the nation landed, so to speak, when they went out of the wilderness, crossed through the Jordan River on dry land, and landed on the other side. That was the city of Gilgal. And if you recall, when Joshua led them through, he commanded one person from every tribe to go into the river and get a tribute stone, get a stone, and bring it to the river and put it on its side so that for the rest of history they could look to their kids and say, that is a reminder to us that God saved us from the wilderness, he saved us from the Jordan, he saved your grandparents from Egypt, and it was a reminder as it sat there as not an idol, but as a monument. 
But now, Gilgal is simply remembered as a place that is full of idols. Gilgal was where they celebrated the first Passover in the Promised Land. It's a place where they regularly camped. It was almost like Joshua's headquarters, and now it's known specifically for its idols. Just one more reference to the sorry spiritual state of affairs in the nation. So Ehud demisses his entourage, and he goes back to Eglon all by himself. And this is where the story gets exciting. Now our camera is going to zoom in on Ehud heading back to the palace. And as I said earlier, this is his plan all along. And the king knew him, and the king trusted him. Because if he didn't, Ehud would have never been invited back into the palace, and he certainly wouldn't have invited him to be alone with the king. Now, nobody could prove this, but maybe Ehud was the person for the last 18 years that, that delivered the tribute. We really don't know, but however he knew him, he comes to him in verse 19, and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Everyone likes a secret message, don't they? Now, right here in most cases, in most dramas, when you know the story and you have a singular hero and you have a guy you know is going to be killed, right here you usually have suspicion. You have questions. You have a pause. But Eglon, the king of the nation that has defeated the nation that Ehud lives in represents, doesn't pause at all. He had just brought this massive amount of food and produce and supplies and resource to the king, not because he wanted to, but because he had to. They're not friends. Ehud is an enemy. And instead of suspicion, Eglon trusts him. And he's so intrigued by the secret message that, that he tells his attendants, his guards, his soldiers, his cabinet members... He tells everyone to leave. In fact, let me reread it for you in verse 19. We start in the middle. Ehud says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Interesting drama. Here's this very large, powerful king, almost like a child who has a special present, just a special message, a special surprise. And he has everyone get out. And it's apparently hot, so there's a reference to this cool roof chamber. And, and his eyes seem to just light up over this secret message. And for it to be a message from God creates even more intrigue. I mean, to hear the message, the king has to stand up. And, you know, maybe it's just my, my crazy imagination, but, but, you know, when I think this through, I'm, I'm thinking of this, this guy who's got a turkey leg in one hand, a gigantic goblet in the other of some of, of wine. He just ate a whole pie and he's washing it down. And now he's told he's got this secret message from God. And he has to wipe his beard and wipe his face. And he's going to stand up to hear it and stand up to receive it. And this is exactly what he was waiting for. So he takes his left hand. And he reaches into his right thigh for the sword. And he thrusts it into his belly. And verse 22 states, 
and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Beloved, this is exactly what it says and exactly what it means. Whatever happened to his abdomen, whatever was pierced and sliced and punctured and diced or open, it came out of him in the place that dung normally exits the body. And there he is, the king, laying in his own excrement with a sword hidden in somewhere in his abdomen. And now you see Ehud lock everything up and likely escape out of a window, out of a secret passage, out through the staircase. We don't know how he got out, but he exits the building somehow. He kills the king, and now he's gone. Now, I want to pause from the narrative for a moment and just say that God's sovereignty is a complete mystery to us, isn't it? Because verse 12 says, the Lord strengthened Eglon. This is what allows him to defeat Israel. And then 18 years later, God sends a deliverer who delivers a message from God, and it's a message of judgment upon Eglon, who was previously strengthened by the very God who sent Ehud. Ehud didn't lie. The message was, you are a dead man. You've oppressed God's people long enough. You, you've lived off the hard work of God's people long enough. The message Ehud had was a message of judgment. When God moves people into places of power, and he does, it doesn't mean he won't judge them for the very oppressive power that he allows. We saw this in King Nebuchadnezzar, didn't we? When, when God raises him up to defeat and conquer and take the nation of Judah into captivity. And then several years later, he reduces Nebuchadnezzar to something like an animal living outside for seven seasons, humbling and, bringing, and breaking his arrogant pride. And in the process, he responds and gives glory to God for everything. And the point is, just because God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, doesn't give him the freedom to be proud and arrogant and boastful about what God gave him. All men are accountable before God for every attitude, every thought, every word, and deed. And though Eglon was raised up by God, he's still guilty of his sinful pride and sinful abuse of the people of Israel, and God killed him because of it. Though an instrument in God's hand, he still acted freely in his sin. And it's his death that opens the door for this incredible rescue. And as our camera continues to shoot these movie scenes, we're now watching Ehud run like a crazy man to escape from the palace without being seen. Then the camera would move back to Eglon, lying on the floor, quite honestly, from the text even, smelling pretty ripe. The men who were his attendants were probably immediately concerned that that Eglon was alone with Ehud. They couldn't do anything about it because he was the king. Now the concern continues to mount because he's been alone with him for quite a while. Notice verse 24. When he, Ehud, had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. 
But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Locked doors, a very large man laying his own excrement, and the subsequent smell coming through the door, it would be natural to think that, that he's doing what most people call his business. So they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And one guy said, and remember, he's the king. One of the attendants says, hey, why don't you go knock on the door and, and, and see what's going on in there? Uh, he's the king. I'm not going to knock on the door because if what's going on in there is, is what I think is going on in there, he'll kill me. Well, why don't we just wait a little longer? Why don't we wait a little longer? And then finally, the text says they're embarrassed. And they finally go in there and see their Lord, their king, their leader dead on the floor. A gruesome sight, and Ehud is long gone because of the delay. From there, the story continues to follow Ehud, who's now not just a singular hero, but now he's the commander of the national army, and he rallies the troops. And this day in particular, when, it, when a king, when you lose a king, the nation is devastated. And with Eglon dead, this weakened the Moabites, strengthened Ehud and the army of Israel. And in verse 28, he calls the nation to follow him. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Israelites rally. They kill 10,000 Moabites, not just average Moabites. These text says they were strong, able-bodied men. And on account of this great victory, the land has rest for 80 years. And then let me read verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, what, what an incredible story. And to think that the Holy Spirit led and directed this to be contained in the word of God. This is not the word of men, it's the word of God. And the big question is now, well, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Well, First, let me ask the question. We went over this last week. Is this description or is it prescription? Is this prescribing something that we should do for all time? Does this give someone the freedom to go into an abortion clinic and kill the abortion doctor to save the babies? Is this prescription? This is how we're supposed to do assassinate people for the glory of God? Or is this description describing a one-time event that happened at this, term, this time period? It's important to know, isn't it? We would say this is description. No one's telling us that this is how we should go do likewise. It's description. But think for a moment what the typical Israelite a few hundred years later would think when they heard this read. First, you cannot miss the humor in the narrative. If you're an Israelite during the days of King David, well, most people believe that this was written. And you heard this read... You heard it read publicly. You would be laughing hard. Uh, I, I would say it this way. God humiliates his enemies and causes joyful laughter among his people. What is more humiliating than having one man come into a palace and subsequently free God's people by assassinating the king and leaving him behind in his own refuse? I mean, the left-handedness of Ehud would have first grabbed your attention and truthfully, the sheer foolishness of Eglon allowing Ehud, his enemy, to be alone with him, that would have caused the men and the women there to say out loud, what, what is wrong with those Moabites? 
Are, are they, just, they, they don't even think, do they? Just let their enemies in the palace? And his obesity and knowing it's related to the tribute would have made the Israelites angry at him for the abuse and the taxation of Israel. And the fact that Ehud escaped because his own attendants thought he was relieving himself would have just caused them to roll over and laugh out loud. And then if you add the ew factor, the ew factor of knowing what came out of him and how it came out of him and what it smelled like coming out of him. And then seeing those in the palace pacing back and forth to try to decide whether or not they should go in or stay out. Beloved, this is hysterical. This is funny to the average Israelite who's reading this. Future Israelites would read this and they would marvel at God's deliverance. They would give him glory for such a deliverance. And they would have seen his hand in this deliverance. And a big part of the reason they would have seen this deliverance from God is related to the, the unique and insignificance of both the person and the weapon. And I think this is why uh, Judge Shamgar is included in the narrative. You got one guy telling no one his plans. He has maybe a 15-inch double-sided blade that, according to verse 16, he made it. I mean, he's in his garage. He's in his barn. He's on his back porch. He doesn't have electricity. He's got a piece of steel, and he's got some rocks. And he's going to make himself a double-edged sword that's going to deliver Israel. Along with that, Ehud's from the tribe of Benjamin. It's a no-name tribe. He's a lefty, which is abnormal. He doesn't have chariots of iron. He doesn't have any weapons of war. And he goes in completely alone. The army isn't formed until after the death of the king. And Shamgar saves Israel with a more unique weapon than the one handmade by Ehud. Because he he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Now, an ox goad is still used today. You all know I know nothing about farming whatsoever. But when I was in college, I used to go home with a friend of mine who had a dairy farm. And he showed me an electric ox goad, which is really cool. It's kind of short. But you zap a cow, you zap a steer, they're going to move with this electric ox goad. It's not the kind that Shamgar had. His was probably about eight foot long and had a point on the end of it. Um, and at the end of the day, at the, it, it's just not something that you would consider a weapon of war. And at the end of the day, 10,000 Moabites are killed because one man made a handmade sword and 600 Philistines are killed with a farming tool. So who's doing the delivering? Who's the one doing the saving? Who is the nation? Who, who in the nation or who should the nation put their trust in? When God works, it's never the man doing the delivering. It's God who works in and through his people who have no resources, who have no power, who have no hope of delivering themselves or anybody else. He uses human weakness to highlight his divine power. And the entire book of Judges highlights weaknesses just in the way that God shows the kinds of weapons that he delivers his people with. Here is this homemade sword strapped to a 
to your thigh, and it's a farming tool. It's an ox goad. But when we read through the book of Judges, we're going to find out also that Samson's going to win victory with a jawbone of a donkey. Jael's going to have victory with a tent peg. And Gideon's going to defeat thousands with empty jars, torches, and trumpets. If someone would have sat down with Ehud as he's making his sword and said, what are you going to do? How do you think the conversation would have went? Well, I'm, I'm going to make this sword. I'm going to hide it under my clothes. And after I bring the tribute, I'm going to dismiss everyone. I'm going to go into the king's private chambers. I'm going to stab him and make a run for it. <laughs> that is a ridiculous plan. But it sounds like David, doesn't it? When he tells his brothers and he tells Saul that that <laughs> that he's happy to go against Goliath the Philistine because that uncircumcised Philistine is taunting the armies of the living God. It wasn't his sling. It wasn't the rock that killed Goliath, and it's not the ox code or the double-edged sword that saves Israel. It was God. God and God alone saves his people. Salvation is of the Lord. The fact that God works in and through weak people with no resources is such an encouragement to you and I as New Testament believers. It reminds me of a song we used to sing a long time ago. It says something like, little is much when God is in it. Or sermons I've heard, maybe out of context, but I still like them, when the little guy brings his five loaves and his two fish, and Jesus feeds thousands from those meager portions. There are days, beloved one, there are days when you may not feel you have anything to offer. But let me assure you that as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 1, that God delights in using the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the low and the despised as well because weakness in God's economy is actually a position of usefulness because it moves us to cry out to him and it moves us to plead with him and it moves us to depend upon him and it moves us to trust him. And he does this. He does this so no human being can boast in the presence of God. Because when you're empty, he will fill you. When you're weak, he will strengthen you. He will always be with you. So he raises up weak Ehud, and God and God alone delivers Israel from Moabite bondage. So we have laughter, we have weakness, we have deliverance. But to be honest, we're, we're, we're beginning to see despair because of what seems like this never-ending cycle of bondage and deliverance. And again, reading this during the reign of King David, after enjoying and laughing about the deliverance, you're going to go right into chapter 4, verse 1, and see that the people of Israel again, again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You read about the 40 years of rest after Othniel delivered the nation, no inward change. Now we read about the 80 years of rest after Ehud and Shamgar, no inward change. And the pattern here, the problem is not physical, it's spiritual. 
Their bondage is a bondage to sin, which, which then puts them in the predicament that they're in. And there's no human judge. There's no human deliverer that can fix the problem. They're doomed to repeat the cycle again and again and again. God sees, God sells, God saves the nation's sins. And you're seeing that each deliverance and each deliverer is completely inadequate to solve the problem of why they're in, the bondage, in bondage in the first place. So they're going to repeat this until a better deliverer comes, until a perfect savior comes, until an eternal judge comes. They're going to repeat this until the promised one comes. So there's joy in their victory and then sorrow and defeat. There's joy in being set free. But tomorrow they'll be held captive again. And, and we, as we read on in the book of Judges, we know the people think they have the answer to the problem. They think the answer is a king. They think having a king will save them. They think having a king will secure them. They think having a king will free them from all bondage and all slavery permanently. And we'll eventually come to the theme that we already mentioned in chapter 17, that in those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his, in his own eyes. So they do see the problem, don't they? The problem is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're worshiping Baal. They're marrying with outsiders. They're worshiping Asheroth. They also see the solution. We need a king. But what they eventually discover is not even a king can solve their problems. Even the great King David can't keep them from doing what's right in their own eyes because he too did what was right in his own eyes. So the problem's diagnosed. Doing what's right in their own eyes. Not obeying God's law. Not obeying his word. Not obeying his rules. Not loving and seeking him. The diagnosis is that they're sinners. But the solution is not an earthly king. They need a king who will deliver them from sin. They need a king who has the power to conquer their rebellious hearts. They need a Messiah, a Savior, who will save permanently. They need the one who's coming, who promised that he will not just save them from external earthly captivity or give them 40 or 80 years of rest. They need the one who's coming, who will save his people from the penalty of sin, who will continue to save them from the power of sin, and one day they'll be saved from the presence of sin. They need a savior. And each and every captivity, each and every judge, each and every short-lived rest in the book of Judges is meant for us to long for that permanent rest, long for eternal life, the final conquering of sin and of death that we'll experience when Christ comes, lives, dies, and is raised to save eternally. The king that Israel needs, the king that we need, is not David. It's the eternal son of David. We need King Jesus. He's the judge of all people, and he demonstrates to us his love for us, the depth of the Father's love by Christ's coming living and dying for us. Let's pray.